Missio, the scripture today is from Revelation chapters 10 and 11. Buckle up. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun, and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. And he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it, and said, There will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then I heard the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. I will turn, it will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. So I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. And I will point, appoint my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time that they are prophesying. And they have the power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of them some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will be celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there's a severe earthquake, 
and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to God, the God of heaven. The second woe is past. The third woe is coming soon. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who, had, who were seated on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a severe hailstorm. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you so much, Ken. Everybody, would you thank Ken? That's just a lot of text to read. <laughs> uh, before we jump in, um, oh, by the way, I'm Johnny. I'm one of the pastors here. If we've not met, it's so good to have you. Um, before we jump in, just one thing uh, extra throw at your radar to get you aware of. Uh, if you've been paying attention to the news, so many things are happening. And so it could have gotten lost, but in the midst of all the news about Afghanistan and the news about other things that are happening in the world, um, Haiti was hit with a very severe earthquake and then followed up by a severe storm. And we have a kind of a longstanding relationship and partnership with the uh, organization that does a lot of work in Haiti that Ken, who read today, sits on the board of. And over the last handful of years, we've partnered with that organization in order to um, support local leaders in Haiti providing clean water. And over the last couple of years, specifically during COVID, their mission has expanded to not just providing clean water, but to also providing hygiene kits and resources for combating COVID since hygiene, water, is such an important part of that process. And so, again, we're going to partner with them right now because municipal water services in Haiti have been massively disrupted by an earthquake and by the storm. And what the organization does is helps provide, like, clean water resources. They have 16, I think, if I remember correctly, um, water resource centers in Haiti that's run by local leaders that are all still functioning, uh, but they're functioning at a much higher level than they are built for. And so they're trying to resource those, uh, increase production on those, and resource local leaders even further. So if you would like to support um, clean water in Haiti, you can do so here. Um, you can text GIVE to Missio Day SLC um, to this number, 77977. Or if you go to the website or use our app, there's a little drop-down menu. There's an option that just says For Haiti. Everything that goes to that fund, so everything that goes to the For Haiti Fund goes directly to supporting clean water in Haiti during this specific moment. So all of it will go directly there if you're looking for just a way in which to feel helpful when sometimes these moments can feel pretty helpless for folks here. So that is that. Um, we are, you could probably tell, 
in a series in the book of Revelation entitled Kingdom Come. We're going to be in the book. We've been in the book all of summer, and we're going to continue to be in the book of Revelation until the season of Advent, so end of November. So we got a lot to go, which is why we're doing um, you know, huge chunks of text at the same time. And if you've been with us, we've been wrestling with maybe a set of questions or a set of difficult realities that the book of Revelation makes us aware of. And what we've been talking about is that, especially in these last handful of chapters, we are exploring the concept of judgment. And we bring a lot of notions to what judgment is. I think for many of us, or at least in my own mind, if I think about what is biblical judgment, very quickly the thing that jumps into my mind is like, a divine figure throwing fire at the earth, and that's what biblical judgment looks like. But what we're seeing throughout the book of Revelation is that biblical judgment is not this notion of a divine figure throwing fire at the earth or a divine figure sending something onto the earth. Instead, biblical judgment in Revelation looks far more like God turning a mirror onto humanity. It looks like a mirror is being turned onto humanity so that we can see what it is that we have done to the world. The story of the book of Revelation, and not just Revelation, of the entire biblical narrative from Genesis 3 on, is that humans have unleashed hell into the world. And so as we look at the destruction around us, what we are witnessing is not some divine judgment outside of us. It is actually us setting fire to the world ourselves. So as we look at the pain that we see around us or the destruction that we see around us, that is the notion of judgment. It is us coming face to face with the reality of our own situation. It's us coming face to face with the fact that we set the house on fire and God wants to get us out of the house and God wants to rescue the house. But there's this reoccurring problem throughout the book of Revelation, which is that we continue to sabotage and set fire to the house. And so God holds a mirror up to us, revealing the way in which we are complicit, the way that we participate, the way that we act as an obstacle to God's movement and God's mission in the world. But last week, as we were working through chapter 9, we came to a question or a tension. And here it is in 9 verse 20. It says, The rest of humankind who were not killed by plagues, they did not change their hearts. And their lives did not turn from their handiwork. They didn't stop worshiping demons or idols made of gold and silver, bronze, stone, and wood. Idols that can't see or hear or walk. At the end of chapter 9, the issue is that humans see, we see the mirror, right? We get to look at ourselves in the mirror and we're unconvinced. We see the world that we've made, according to chapter 9. We see that our worship of false gods, that our worship of money, that our worship of self has unleashed hell onto the world. And God pulls the mirror, shows us that we've unleashed hell onto the earth. We look at the mirror and we're like, it's not my fault. We're unconvinced by what we see. And we see this just all the time, not just in the biblical story or in this kind of strange symbols, but this happens to us in our world all the time. 
the news the last two weeks has been filled with conversations about what happened in Afghanistan. And it, it is fascinating that the primary conversation seems to be that the people of Afghanistan did something wrong. This is what I've seen maybe the most. That somehow they didn't get it. That we gave them every chance, every opportunity to like figure out this freedom and democracy thing, and yet they screwed it up. And so it's really their fault that things have gone wrong. And without even trying to get into a conversation about like the politics of Afghanistan, that is a fascinating response to have to an apocalypse. The people of Afghanistan are having a revelation moment, and it could also for us be a revelation moment, apocalyptic moment that pulls back to the surface and reveals something that holds a mirror up and challenges to ask, what did we do? And yet, it doesn't seem that we're that interested in having that conversation. What is the power of American military to build a world outside of our own? doesn't seem like that's a conversation that we want to have. We saw it again in the last couple of summers as protests erupted all over the United States in protests of the death of George Floyd. Again, it's a moment that something apocalyptic is happening, right? Systems are being unraveled. Things are being revealed. Tension is happening. Convulsions are happening. That's what the story of Revelation is about. And it can lead to a moment of self-reflection where we own our own complicity, we look clearly at ourselves in the mirror, we have a conversation with how we have participated, or it can, well, not lead to that. We can look in the mirror and say, oh, I don't, I'm not complicit in what happened here. I have nothing to do with this. Or on a personal level, we experience apocalypse when our relationships continue to unravel. If you have a long history of relationships unraveling around you, that's an apocalyptic thing. Something is convulsing. Something is being revealed in the midst of your life. And that could lead us to a chance to reflect, to look in the mirror and say, is there some common denominator in this situation that all of my relationships seem to unravel? But often, instead of looking in the mirror and reflecting on what we have seen, we look in the mirror and blame other people. And I think we religious people, uh, if you're not religious in this room, I don't know how you got here. <laughs> uh, just I'll exclude you from this. But I think we people who've grown up in the church, who've grown up in religious settings, we are maybe the worst at this. We have very cleverly found ways to look in the mirror and blame everyone around us and never totally see ourselves. How often do we read our Bibles and primarily think of other people? How often do we hear a sermon and primarily think of other people? How often do we listen to a podcast or have some kind of revelatory moment, but all of it is about how other people have seemed to fall short of whatever God is doing in the world? We're well-trained and well-habituated in looking in a mirror and not seeing ourselves. And this is the issue at the end of chapter 9, that the world looks in the mirror that God provides and we don't reflect on ourselves. There is no transformation. There is no change. And so the question becomes, what does God do when we see but do not see? What does God do when the evidence of our own destruction, the evidence of our own ways is apparent, maybe to everybody else, maybe apparent in the world, but we don't see it. 
This is the question that carries us into Revelation chapter 10. And as John, who's like seeing these visions and hearing this conversation with God, he's reeling from this question. And as he's like reeling from this question and wrestling with it, Revelation 10 depicts this like really beautiful moment of like the sky breaking, the clouds parting, even a rainbow appears. It's all of the signs of good news in a text. And John says this, and he sees this in verse 2 and then verse 5 and 6. He says, John sees an angel, a messenger of God, and in the angel's hand there was an open scroll. Now, if you remember from previous work in this text, the scroll is a symbol of God's plan to rescue the world. So this is like the thing that everybody's hoping for in the book of Revelation, that John is hoping for, that the world is hoping for. It's like this little image is God's plan that will un fold into the world and rescue us. So he sees an angel holding the scroll, and it's open. Then the angel that I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. He swore by the one who lives forever and always, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it, and said, the time is up. The angel holds the scroll, this hope of God's rescue plan, and it is open. And the angel declares, oh, the time is up. God's plan, the movement of rescue, the hope of the world, it's about to unfold. The things we've been longing for, the hopes that we've been having, they are coming into fruition. This is the moment that we've been waiting for in all of its cinematic glory. So as we read it, we wait on bated breath, and the angel gives the scroll to John to eat it. Eating a scroll is like a pretty common yet strange biblical image for taking God's message and making it your own. So John takes the scroll, now he's going to deliver it to the world, and it says that the message is sweet and sour, meaning it tastes good, but it makes his stomach churn. This is going to be news that's good, but it might feel a little weird. And then the angel tells John, say it. You have the hope, the message loaded with hope, now tell it to the world. So John does in chapter 11. And in chapter 11, John sees two images that seem really strange, as most of the images in Revelation seems, but when you put it together, contain this good news. In the first image, John sees the temple and is told to measure it. Uh, Measuring in the biblical story is sort of like if someone gave you a stack of money and was like, count it. It would be like a gesture of grandness, like this is something big, this is something impressive. And in this moment, the image comes from the Old Testament and the prophet of Ezekiel. And Ezekiel lives in Babylon. This is after Israel's been exiled, if you know the story. The temple has been destroyed, and Ezekiel sees an image of the temple rebuilt in glory. And God tells Ezekiel, measure it. Count it. This is huge. This is big news. Go count how big this is. And so the prophet does. And then in this moment, it's picked up, and John sees this restored temple and is told to count it, to measure it. And this is big news to see the restored temple because for Israel, the temple is a place of God's presence. It's where God lived with his 
people. He gave the temple to Israel to make them a distinct kind of nation, and yet it's been destroyed. It was destroyed by the time of the prophet Ezekiel. It gets rebuilt, and then in AD 70, it's destroyed again. So it's been destroyed twice by the time that John is seeing this vision. So he sees this vision, this hope, the temple's rebuilt. But what is fascinating about that image is what John is told to measure. He's told to measure the temple, like the inner building. He's told to measure the altar, which is like the place that God's presence would have dwelt physically. If we were like looking for a physical symbol of where God was, it would be the altar. And then he's told to measure the people, like who is in there and who is worshiping. But he's very distinctly not told to measure the court, which would be the outside of the temple. And that was the place where you and I would have worshipped. Gentiles, non-Jewish followers of God, we would have worshipped in the outside court, kind of kept away from the most inner sanctum of the temple. And that's fascinating. Why in God's restored temple does John not measure the place that you and I would have belonged, the court of the nations, the outside designation of the temple? Why is that boundary that would keep us from worshiping not measured? Huh. So hold that image in your head, and then John sees a second image. Two witnesses who prophesy, and it's said that these witnesses are like a lampstand, their words are like fire. It says the beast will wage war on them, we'll get there, kill them where Jesus died, and then that they will be resurrected while their enemies watch. And so there's a lot going on there. And so as we dive into that, just remember, Revelation is imaginative. It's like a painting or parables. It's trying to symbolically represent something to us. But I think if we can understand these witnesses, a lot will make sense. So John sees two witnesses. Who were these witnesses intended to represent? I don't know if anybody's seen the uh, uh, Kirk Cameron Left Behind movies. Uh, this is works of art. Uh, if you have, the two witnesses are depicted as like old Jewish men who just like come out of nowhere and literally breathe fire everywhere in the movie. Um, so that's one interpretation, is that they are actual fire-breathing Jewish men. Um, <laughs> it's pretty, pretty cool. Um, some argue that they are Moses and Elijah reincarnated. That's interesting. Um, and some, some religions, like different religions who uh, approach this text, say that these are maybe more modern prophets, modern prophets who are going to Israel to prophesy. But John actually tells us who these people are. It's not a thing that we have to figure out or a code that we have to dissect. He tells us. He says that the witnesses are lampstands. And that's language that John has already used to describe something in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 1, 20, John is already seeing his first vision of everything. He sees a vision of God, and he sees a vision of the throne, and it says this. And he sees a vision of, of seven stars in God's right hand and seven golden lampstands. And John says, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, here is what they mean. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So the images of two witnesses are another symbol of the church. 
two witnesses in this moment. They're just another parable or another symbol or another imaginative picture of the church in its vocation, faithfully witnessing. It's an image of the church faithfully witnessing, doing the job that they were called to do. And where are they witnessing? Oh, in the court of nations. That place that separated the inner sanctum of the temple for non-Jewish believers, that's where the witnesses are located. And this should start to fill a lot of our understanding of the gospel, that the church, God's people, filled with God's presence, stand at the intersection of the presence of God and the world around them, faithfully witnessing to the thing that God is doing around them. It's what Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 9, that we have been made a nation of priests, holy people who live in the intersection of God's presence and the world. Or Paul in Ephesians 2 says that we are a living temple filled with God's presence. This is an image of the church doing what it is intended to do, faithfully witnessing to the presence of God. Theologian Richard Bauckham says it this way, The people of God have been redeemed from all nations in order to bear witness to all the nations. The two individuals here represent the church in its faithful witness to the world. This story is more like a parable which dramatizes the nature and the result of the church's witness. Revelations 11 is a picture of the church in the power of the Spirit extending God's presence and participating in God's work. So what is the news that is unfolding in the scroll? It's God's people in the world bearing witness to the reality of God around them. Now that's a beautiful image. When the church does it right, which to be fair, we have mostly sad stories of the church not seeming to do this. But the news turns sour very quickly. Right? It's honey on the lips, and then it turns sour in the stomach, and it turns sour very quickly. We get this beautiful image of the church in power, participating in the thing that God is doing. And then in verse 7, John sees, When they have finished their witnessing, the beast comes up from the abyss and will make war on them and give, gain victory over them and kill them. We'll explore this symbol in the weeks to come, but In very simple, the beast is a symbol of things that are anti-God throughout the book of Revelation. So often it represents Rome. Rome is like the symbol of the empire arrayed against God throughout Revelation. So often the beast is just Rome. Sometimes it's Babylon. Sometimes it's an unnamed empire. But it is always connected to human arrogance. To an arrogance that could look in a mirror and see everyone but ourselves. It's the kind of arrogance that sees the convulsion of the world around you and says, that is not my fault or problem. It's the kind of arrogance that when our relationships unravel consistently, it has no self-reflection. It is the arrogance that says, I can fix the world around me on my own, that I can save them. And John says here, the beast gains victory over the witnesses 
and kills them. I mean, that is like the worst news that we could have heard. If we go back to the question that began this section of Scripture, how does that resolve the tension at all? How does that answer the question of what do we do when we look in the mirror and don't change? The beast seems to win. And here's the thing about the beast, is that the only weapon the beast has is death. This is true of all beasts in all different forms. Rome's empire is built on the power of death, to take away life from its enemies, to enforce peace through a sword. This is true literally, but it is true of all of the different places the beast show up. Why do we not look in the mirror and self-reflect? Because to be honest with ourselves about our own complicity in the world around us or about our own participation in the pain that we see feels like death. Feels like death to be truly vulnerable. Feels like death to be honest with ourselves. It feels like death to be true. Some ways you could call it like an ego death, that there is an actual kind of death that takes place, the death of the self, to really be honest about the world around us, about our own sin, about our own worship. It feels like death, and that's because the beast's weapon is death, and its promise is protection from death. That if we are not honest about our own participation, if we're not honest about our own sin, if we're not honest about our own worship, then what we are doing is protecting ourselves from death. That's the strength, that's the power, that's the weapon, that's the promise of the beast. But here is where the good news comes in, 8 and 11. It says, the beast wins, the dead bodies will lie on the streets of the great city that is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt. This is also where their Lord was crucified. Oh, that's interesting. If we're using symbolic, parable-like language, and you see this is where Jesus died, you should probably, you know, notice that something special is about to happen. But after three and a half days, oh, that's another interesting number. Three and a half, how long was Jesus dead? It says, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear came over all who saw them. So the church will die like Jesus died. That's the image that's being communicated here, that the church, the faithful witness, will die like Jesus died. The beast will gain victory. But that victory... Well, it is not the victory the beast thinks it is. As the Apostle Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, 15, death has been swallowed up by victory. Where is your victory, death? Where is your sting, death? The beast will use the only weapon it has to keep us in line, but in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, death loses its power. Jesus unmasks the power of the beast. And this is the strange 
beautiful good news of this text that Jesus has stolen the only power that the beast has, the only power that the empire has, the only power that our fear has, the only power that those things that keep us from looking in the mirror and actually owning our own selves, it has stolen all of that away. And freed us from the fear of death. The church is a community of people who have been freed from the fear of death. In the cross and the resurrection, the church becomes a fearless people, unafraid of what the empire can take. But we are also freed from all of the fears of death that keep us from the mirror. Paul says this in Romans 8, But if we have died with Christ then we have faith that we will also live with Jesus. We know that Christ has been raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has power over him. He died to sin once for all with his death, but he lives for God with his life. In the same way, you should also consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive for God in Christ Jesus. This is in the cross and in the resurrection we are unafraid of the kinds of death that the beast wields. Unafraid of the kind of death that comes when we look at the mirror. Because what is truly dying when we look at the mirror? Well, not who we truly are, not who we are resurrected to be in Jesus. It is just the sin or the false worship or the idols that we have held on to. No death can gain the victory. That's a lie of the beast, and it has been unmasked by the cross, and so we get to be fearless. And it is this fearless witness, this willingness to die to self, to die in the world, that actually witnesses to what God is doing. At the end of Revelations 11 here, or in 13, there's this very weird story that kind of feels like it comes out of nowhere, where there is an earthquake. And it says 7,000 people die from the earthquake, and the rest are afraid and glorify God. And it's a strange image, but it is, again, rooted in some Old Testament pictures. And multiple times in the Old Testament, there is an image of an earthquake. But instead of 7,000 people dying, the image is often 7,000 people are saved, and everybody else dies. And the notion is that there is like 7,000 faithful people. Seven is this like number of perfection in Scripture. And so it's meant to evoke that there is a group of faithful people, a small minority of faithful people. They'll be saved from the earthquake. Everyone else will die. What's fascinating is that in this moment, the image is flipped. 7,000 faithful people die, and the world is saved because of it. How fascinating is that? And the image is intended to continue the parable that we're telling, which is through our willingness to die to self, to live fearlessly, we witness to the reality of Jesus around us. That it is in the, fearless, the fearless witness to God, in a willingness to die, a willingness to look in the mirror and be honest with what we see, a willingness to look at the empire and say, you just have no power here, that the world sees what Jesus is doing. That in our willingness to face death with fearlessness, we point to Jesus.
this kind of radical fearlessness witnesses to the world around us a different reality. A willingness to look in the mirror and to see ourselves and to see the hope on the other side. And this is the reason I think this is the second part or the continuation of God's plan. He turns a mirror on us so that we can see ourselves truly reflected. But sometimes that's not enough to see what's truly going on in us. We need images and pictures of hope. Images that make possible in our minds and our hearts what God is doing in the world around us. And this is what the church is called to do, to witness to the other side of the fear of death. What is possible on the other side when you know that death has been unmasked and the sting removed? If Revelation tells us anything about the church, it is this, that Christians are a people of what is possible. What is possible when you are no longer afraid? It's not a question of perfection. It's a question of just new possibilities when the fear of death has been removed. The point is not to hold this perfectly. It is actually the willingness to stumble because death has lost its sting. So what happens if I'm vulnerable in my struggle? Nothing. The fear of death, of ego death, of personal death, of real death is gone. Paul will go on to say in Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, not even death. This chapter ends with a picture of what is to come. So we've spent a lot of time here in the picture of what is, of what's happening, of what the church is called to. But then in verse 15 of chapter 11, John switches what he sees or what he declares to us. And he says this, this this is a beautiful statement. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he will rule forever and always. Chapter ends with this beautiful picture of what is to come. It doesn't tell us when. It's always what we miss in Revelation. We try to get focused on decoding when the kingdom's coming or even how the kingdom is coming or in what means it's coming. That's not the point. The point is to give us a picture of what is coming. The world will be made the kingdom of God. Right now, we live in the middle, the already, not yet. Between the sixth and the seventh trumpet, so to say. And we have been invited, Missio, to point the world to this coming kingdom. The question is, is what if we did? Missio, what is possible if we lived knowing that the sting of death has been removed? That the beast has been unmasked, that the weapon that keeps us in place has been unarmed? What might be possible for a fearless people? What kind of justice would we pursue? 
What kind of generosity would we extend? What kind of forgiveness would we offer? What kind of reconciliation would we participate in if we knew that the thing we were afraid of on the other side of it actually had no real power? Monsieur, what is possible if we are truly not afraid of death? Let's pray. Jesus, we see in you what is possible when we're not afraid of death. It's not easy. It's good news that is sometimes hard to digest. Honey on the lips, but sour in the stomach. But we see in you what is possible. Radical forgiveness. A kind of love that overcomes all barriers, a kind of love that absorbs all the hostility in the world into yourself and offers us a space to call our own. So Jesus, today as we worship, as we come to the table, as we pray, would you give us an image of what is possible in you? Would you give us an image of the cross and resurrection? So we could see what it looks like to be fearless in the face of death and we can go learning that fearlessness ourselves. So you just show us the way. In your name we pray. Amen. Miss you, we're going to invite you to continue worshiping with us. When you're ready, we invite you to the table here in the middle. The elements are sealed for COVID safety, but you can take them at the table, take as long as you want, or you can bring them back to your seats. And we gather at this table every single week because we believe in this moment God meets us. And we believe it's this meeting place of that kind of new possibility we're seeing. And we are a fearless people. What is possible? Oh, a table where everyone is welcome. So, Mr. when you're ready, we invite you to the table. We invite you to continue to sing. And if you would like someone to pray with you, there'll be people over here at this section who would love to pray with you. Miss you, let's continue to worship.